we'll do him first. <laughs> I know he's really huge. Okay. Are we ready? Is it on? Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I have a surprise for everyone to start off with. Oh, baby. For anyone who needs a little bit of puppy therapy, because the world is a hard place these days, I want to introduce everyone to our new Oso. <laughs> Every people know that we lost our, our first Oso. Um, gosh, it's been now a couple of months, I think. And... Um, so we had to, we had a huge hole in our heart, so we had to get another Oso. So, here. <laughs> Hi, everybody. And um, he's amazing. Puppies are amazing. And obviously, this is part of my mission to elevate the position of dogs in the Islamic tradition, because these dogs are just so divine and amazing and beautiful and crazy. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you want to take them, Rami? And uh, there you go. Oh, sweetie pie. Really want to encourage people if you've never had a dog in your life to get one, start small, and work your way up. <laughs> They're amazing. <laughs> um, but they honestly, like, you know, there's nothing like after a hard day or, you know, just even just watching the news, um, going and get, getting some puppy therapy. It can really turn everything around. The energy is just incredible. And it's really a shame, as I always say, for Muslims to be the ones that are scared of dogs or hate dogs or think that dogs are dirty. It's just simply wrong. If you've spent any time with a dog, you know that they're absolutely divine creatures. They are just placed on this planet to be with us human beings, um, here to love us, to serve us, to make us happy. Um, and it's, it's honestly, it's an honor for us to take care of dogs like this. And you see how much they, they dedicate their lives to just serving you. And so um, it's truly an incredible blessing that every human being, every Muslim should experience. So. Um, that's my, my, my daily plug for, the, for our four-legged, uh, beautiful dog creatures. Um, so I just, of course, have to start, as usual, by calling out the amazing um, khutbah from Friday, from yesterday. Um, it's called Choosing, life, or Choosing Death Over Life, The Illusion of Liberty. Um, and it's a really um, powerful and sort of painful um, khutbah where Sheikh talks about what's going on right now. It's a, um, in Canada, there is some legislation that just passed regarding human euthanasia. And so um, they, the Supreme Court there has expanded um, the, the right, so-called right, of a person who um, not only is just suffering from a terminal illness to end his or her life, but also if you have a um, chronic illness and now they're also thinking about expanding it to if you basically are just done with life. You're, you have mental illness, you are unhappy, you're, you know, you're depressed. Um, and it's a, a really um, shocking and um, you know, incredible situation. And it's not just Canada, but it's also in you know, um, other Western countries like Belgium and Sweden and I guess uh, you know, other parts in Europe. And I think what's the most powerful um, you know, discussion in this khutbah is just understanding how, um, you know, this is served up to us as the, the illusion of choice, right? You know, it's like we have our right, we can choose whether or not we want to live and how, you know, how that just feels so, you know, um, empowering. 
But when you understand that it's really about a choice that society has made um, about your quality of life. So if you have, like before you, you know, the one example that is um, in Canada is a man who is now confronting having a horrible illness um, and it's going, it's so costly and so difficult that it's going to make him homeless. So he wants to live, but confronted with this idea of should I be, you know, homeless or, you know, struggle with this illness, I, he'd rather, or be dead, he would rather be dead. And, you know, it's, it's a commentary, it's like an, an exit out from having, you know, your family take care of you, your society take care of you, your state take care of you. Um, you know, it's, it's the choice, you know, we've made as a society the choice to spend, you know, billions and trillions of dollars on the military, on war, on, you know, all of these horrible things, but we haven't made the choice to invest that in palliative care or how to take care of people at the end of life, people who are no longer profitable or functional or, or you know, valuable for society because they are just now a burden. And so, um, it, you know, and of course this is going to hit people who are at the, you know, lowest levels of our society, people who are poor, people who, you know, are um, not white, uh, not elite, and so it's very much uh, a reflection of this illusion that capitalism can create. So. Um, it's a really, really powerful chutbah that I really encourage everyone to go back and watch. Um, and there's just, there's so much to learn and it's, it's really, uh, you know, just shakes you at the soul because these are decisions that people can make when there's no God in, you know, it's a secular world. But for us as Muslims, you know, we know that the choice of life is, is not for us to take away. This is something that, you know, it's a gift that God has given us and it's something that, you know, is, is a, a blessing and a gift. And, and obviously, um, there's just so much more to this moral discussion. So um, again, highly encourage you to watch that. Um, and ultimately, it will end up, inshallah, in um, one of our volumes of The Prophet's Pulpit. So I just wanted to take this opportunity again to share some actually really amazing stories. So we, you know, launched this Share With a Friend campaign um, not that long ago, but, you know, we've been um, telling people that, you know, thanks to this incredible donor that we are able to send, you know, a, a free gift copy to anyone anywhere in the world. So, um, and people have been taking us up on that. Marwa has been in charge of this incredible project. Um, I think we've now sent out probably 1,500 plus books with more, you know, getting ready to get shipped out. And I asked Marwa just to share with me um, some comments because she is, she gets to you know receive a lot of really beautiful messages from people around the world. It's really interesting. So so far, I mean, the la at the last count a few days ago, we had actually sent books out to 27 different countries and a lot of different you know points within the U.S. Um, and you know some of the messages back are really just touching because people would love to get these books and they just either cannot find them because they're not available or they don't have the money. And so the, you just feel like how heartwarming the message is, how grateful people are when they know that they can have a book sent to them um, and that even more so that maybe they could have an extra copy because um, we always offer for international locations. You know, if you want an extra copy, we're happy to send it to you because for us, it's obviously it's more economical to send two in one package than um, to send you know, two in separate packages. But I just wanted to share some of the comments because they're, they're really amazing. Um, and so these are some that, that Marwa ha has received. So thank you, Marwa, for collecting these. Um, I hope your donor knows how much I appreciate the generosity. My story is that I have been exploring a path towards conversion for a little while, but it's hard to find guidance on one's own. I recently discovered the Suli Institute website and I'm finding it so helpful and encouraging. As a result, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Another one, I'm so excited, I can't wait to read it. It came at a perfect time because I've been going through so much. I know reading it will bring peace and, and knowledge. 
three. I'm looking forward to reading it. I felt it was a sign I came across your post going through some things that ne and need some light, inspiration, and guidance. Inshallah, may Allah um, bless you for this great deed. Um, another one, ever since I read the release of Sheikh's new book, The Prophet's Pulpit, as expected, I was eager to read it, um, but didn't know how I could get it. Thank you and the sponsoring brother or sister. I'm trying to introduce him to the greater Ethiopian Muslim community so that many would benefit from him. So it's from Ethiopia. Um, this is from a student in India. I was born in a Muslim fa family, but never took Islam seriously, but Islamophobia forced me to study this religion. Initially, I was very much in love with Islam, I still am now, but as the doubts kept piling up after being exposed to a very rigid Salafi form of Islam, especially, I could not reconcile the idea of Islam being a liberating experience for women and the burden of being covered up from head to toe and being an obedient wife to receive salvation. I suffered from a deep spiritual crisis and prayed every day, every moment for guidance and healing. It's been two years since I've been following the Asuli Institute and believe me, I genuinely believe it was 99.9% .9 Allah's guidance and 1% my efforts. I've never felt so rejuvenated in my faith as, as I do now. And I really, really appreciate the work you're doing. Inshallah, after completing my medical degree, if Allah wills, I would like to translate some of Dr. Khaled's works in Bengali and Hindi because Muslims in India really need to be introduced to the essence of Islam that is reflected so beautifully in his works. Um, please have me and the Indian Muslims in your, the Suli Institutes and the Professor's Dua, especially with the rising tide of Islamophobia in India. Only Dua can help save us in the future of Islam in India. Please keep doing the work you're doing and believe me, if the Suli Institute could impact one 20-year-old girl from a small city in India, it could have the potential to touch a million more hearts in the near future. Here's another one. Um, I'm so excited to read this book. Dr. Khaled's halakas are what led me to Islam, alhamdulillah, a student in New York. Um, another one from the Philippines. I can't express how grateful I am to Allah that I found his works. It literally saved my faith. May Allah protect and give barakah to all of you. Um, another one. Um, I have read several of his books and find them to be one of the most beautiful expressions of Islam in today's world. That's from Britain. From Germany, I bought and read The Prophet's Pulpit and really loved it. I had to hold back tears a couple of times while reading it, actually. Um, from Singapore, I would like to take this chance to thank Dr. Abul Fuddle for always being keen to share his knowledge. His insights are sharp and gentle, and I learned so much from him in the sessions organized by Usuli, not just about Islam, ethics, and the Quran, but also how to go about speaking about the faith to others, Muslims and non-Muslims alike. That is, that is simultaneously firm and kind. May Allah grant everyone at the Institute the best of his blessings. Um, from Malaysia. I consider myself a longtime follower of Sheikh Khalid. Even though I have never met him personally, I have read all of his books, and I consider Conference of the Books as one of my favorite books of all time, which I revisit over and over again. The chapter on the Prophet brought me to tears. Uh, peace be upon him. Words cannot express how much I would truly appreciate this book, and I have no idea how to return this generous favor other than to offer my du'as to you and yours. Um, okay, from... Um, and these ones I don't know. I ordered this book the moment it was available and it changed my life. I want to get it to as many people, even some of my non-Muslim friends as possible. And then lastly, I wanted to extend my gratitude to you for sending a copy of the book. We received it and my husband and I are taking turns. He is reading the excerpts and it is such a powerful piece of writing about our faith in this time and the timelessness of it. So just to give you a, a sense, but we get messages like this and I, these are just from, that Marwa has received. I've received a bunch from all around the world too. And they really leave you breathless. Um, and you know, we often talk about how important it is to just even make a, a small effort to try and make a difference. Like we are, I, I mean, I'm so grateful that we have this opportunity to just literally drop these seeds around the world 
and I pray that inshallah, you know, people will continue to read the book and, and share it with their friends and, you know, reach out. Let us know if there's anyone who you would like to have received this book. And inshallah, maybe this can make a difference for all of us in the future. Um, and especially now as we get into the holiday season, um, it's this is, you know, people have said this is the only book that I would actually share with my non-Muslim friends. So we were very intentional in writing it in a way where it was not at all exclusionary, where we, you know, every Arabic word has either an immediate translation or a glossary. And, you know, we taught, we use God as opposed to Allah. We wanted this to be an opening and welcoming um, and, you know, very inclusive book for, for Muslims and non-Muslims alike. So anyway, and we're working hard at volume two, inshallah. So um, thank you so much, everyone, for your support. And please keep the requests coming. I am so looking forward to our continuation today, Surah Al-Tawbah, day seven. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining us, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala al-habib al-Mustafa Muhammad. Wa ala alihi al-Athar al-Mayameen wa ala ashabihi al-Mukhtarin. Allahumma shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa ahlul aqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli ya rabbil alameen. So uh, I'm told that we stopped at um, 86. Um, okay, so the I, I think we, we've mentioned this bit. Uh, it's um, so verse 86 and also 87, which speaks about those who radu ali kunu al khawalif wa ala kulubihim fahum la yafqahun. It is. As I as I mentioned, that it is reported that uh, people or uh, from the tribe of Amr bin Tufail uh, who come to the Prophet والسلام, uh, and say that well we if we join the campaign in Tabuk that this will leave our um, uh, homestead vulnerable. And so they effectively request an exemption and act upon an exemption, uh, claiming that, well, they, they can't um, leave their homestead unprotected. And as I noted before that as in Surah Tabuk, I mean, if you if you get rid of the dogma, dogmatic position, and you look at every excuse, and you can see a rational logic for the excuses put forward, uh, 
And in fact, if you're honest with yourself, you can see yourself um, being influenced by, if you put yourself in the position of the people who are asking, asking for, for exemptions, you can see yourself as possibly being one of the people who is asking for an exemption. The idea that, well, you know, we, we, we think that if the men join the campaign in Tabuk, then that leaves the women and children vulnerable um, in the homestead of Amr bin Tufail um, or the cl this, this clan has its logic and could even be reasonable. And if you extrapolate from that excuse to all types of situations in which people say, well, we can't commit to this because the sacrifice, the cost is too high. Um, all of us find ourselves in this situation. But as I noted before, that the issue is how far are you willing to sacrifice? How far are you willing to make your, your trajectory in life about serving a cause? And as I re said repeatedly, that causes are often successful in direct proportion to how many people were willing to make major sacrifices to serve a cause. You know, causes are not victorious because they are morally superior. Causes are not victorious because they're the truth. Causes are not victorious through some miraculous, um, um, miraculous, incomprehensible uh, process. Causes, and 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 this is in consistent with the whole demeanor of the Prophet ﷺ in doing his homework in serving his cause and not relying on his position as a prophet and on the magic of Allah's help. Um, wherever you will find, wherever you ask yourself in any historical moment, in any historical period, why are certain groups of people occupying dominant positions while others are occupying inferior positions, invariably you will find that this goes to the back to the basic simple equation of the extent to which people were willing to sacrifice. And if you remember in I don't remember if it was the last halakha or the one before, where I was talking about the forward sacrificial attitude of, for instance, um, many pioneers of the Western civilization during the, the so-called discovery age, where you had 
numerous, the, 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 this adventurous attitude that says the cause is worse. And in fact, I mean, if you know the history of the discovery period, there was so much of Western colonialism, um, especially even colonizing South America and places like the Caribbeans and so on, there was a mythology of we are in pursuit of the New Jerusalem. There was sort of an ideology invented that Jerusalem is not just a geographic location that exists in the Middle East, or what we call the Middle East, or in Palestine, but that Jerusalem is a moral space, and that the um, Spaniards, as they would, you know, they colonized most of South America, or the Dutch, as they colonized parts of Africa, or um, the the the. Um, sojourns of so many of the British discoverers, the, the dogma of we are in search of the new Jerusalem. And what by that they meant we are in search of God's land and God's promise and the fulfillment of God's promise. Um, so when you go back to Surah At-Tawbah and you find that Allah is chiding a group like Rahta Amr bin Tufayl. And you ask yourself, well, what could Amr bin Tufayl have done in order to fulfill their obligations? Well, they would have had to do something that involves a substantial sacrifice. They could have moved the, their, their homestead, meaning moved the children and women closer to Medina or closer to Mecca, it would have involved a great deal of disruption of the, their pattern of life. But that was the sacrifice required in that historical moment. And without the the micro-historical dynamics, then you can very easily see how this language can get lost. So go back to 86 and 87 and the translation. Um, so let's... Uh, when Allah says that when they receive a surah that calls upon them to perform jihad, that those who are let's see how Muhammad Asa translated um, which is about such of them as were able to go to war. Yeah, he, Muhammad Asa translated that those who are able to go to war ask you for an exemption. But Ulutul is not just those who are able to go to war. 
it's an idiomatic expression that means those who are in the most capable position in society. Idiomatically, it refers always to the most comfortable elements in society, the, the most, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a very eloquent reference to the fact that it is not the people who lead hard lives that are often reluctant to sacrifice, but in fact those who lead comfortable lives are the ones who are most reluctant to sacrifice. Put differently, those most, those who are better positioned to in fact sacrifice are the ones who are most reluctant to sacrifice. While those who already live difficult lives often don't have that same reservations. So when the reference, and notice how, you know, you could read this uh, this area that, oh, those most capable of doing jihad, they're the ones that then ask and tell you, let us be among those who stay behind. And you could then, you know, read the, the ayah that follows that they would accept that they are among the khawalif, that they have accepted or they've, um, yeah, accepted for themselves to be among those who, khawalif are those who stay behind, but the expression has a negative connotation. The khawalif are not just people who stay behind and are morally praiseworthy for doing so. Khawalif are those who stay behind and with a negative moral connotation that they stayed behind either because they're lazy or because they're um, not committed or because they, in other words, whatever excuse that they relied upon to stay behind it was not a valid excuse. Now, if you know the historical dynamics and the historical circumstance, and you understand that this was part of a discourse where people are saying, and, and in fact, as I said, when they went to the Prophet ﷺ and said what they said, he didn't say, no, do X, Y, and Z, and join the campaign. He didn't respond. And they took his non-response as him saying, yeah, you have a valid excuse. But the moral critique comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in saying, you know, if you were serious about your commitment, you would have made the sacrifice. You would have worked out and figured out a way to make the necessary sacrifice rather than relying on a irrationally defensible position, but ultimately a position which furthers no cause because often what is rationally defensible and what is rationally comfortable 
does not does not break the the mold of what is habitual and regular causes are served but what furthers what is a progressive further step further rather than the same old and the the, the validation of the same old dynamics and processes <coughs> okay so this is what 86 and 87 are is talking about and notice of course this then subhanallah that Allah right away contrasts this lakin lakin al-rasul wal-lazina amanu ma'ahu jahadu bi-amwalihim wa-anfusihim wa-ulaika lahum al-khayrat wa-ulaika hum al-mufihun the contrast is although again it says now contrast this with those who are truly committed and the jihad that they offered themselves and their money the the again the translation if you look at it the apostle however and all who share or all who stand with the apostle in god's cause uh, strive hard jihad they, they performed a true jihad with their possessions and their lives Again, it's easy to read this language and pass over it and miss the point. It is often this thick understanding of the historical context of the Quran that allows the what is being signified by these words to resonate within, to say, so the moral here is that the if there's a tendency even if i find comfortable valid excuses that would counsel me not to sacrifice and not to serve the cause it is dangerous for me to rely on these comfortable and va- and and rationally valid excuses because causes need commitment and true sacrifice to be served okay um okay waja al muazzirun al muazzirun min al arab liyuzan lahum وقاد الذين كذبوا وقاد الذين كذبوا الله ورسوله سيصيب الذين كفروا منهم عذاب اليم so this is now 89 and 90 Okay, so look at 90. And there came unto the apostles such of the Bedouins as have some excuse to offer, with the request that they be granted an exemption. Whereas those who were bent on giving the lie to God and God's apostles simply remained at home. And grievous suffering is bound to befall such of them as are bent on denying the truth. But no blame is attached to the weak nor the sick nor those who have no means to equip themselves 
provided they are sincere towards God and God's apostle. And there is no cause to reproach the doers of good, for God is much forgiving, a dispenser of grace. Again, let's take, uh, go on to take 92 as well. وَلَا عَلَى الَّذِينَ إِذَا مَا أَتْوُكَ لِتَحْمِلَهُمْ قُلْتَ لَا أَجِدْ مَا أَحْمِلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ تَوَلَّوْا وَأَعْيُنَهُمْ تَفِيضُوا مِنَ الدَّمَ حَزَنًا أَلَّا يَجِدُوا مَا يُنْفِقُونَ This is uh, 93. Um, Nor shall blame attach to those who, when they came unto you, the Prophet, you said that they asked that you provide them with mounts. We're told by you, I cannot find anything whereupon to mount you. They turned away, their eyes overflowing with tears out of sorrow that had no means to, that they had no means to spend on their equipment. Who are the Nama Sabil Alazina Yastazinuk, Wahum Agnia, Radu Banyakunu, Maal Khawarif, Wataba Allah Ala Kulubim, Homla Yalamun? They the reproachment or those who are rightly reproached are those who ask you for an exemption. While they were fully able to go to war, they were well pleased to remain among those who are left behind, Al Khawalif again. Wherefore, God has sealed their hearts so that they do not know what they are doing. And they will still be offering excuses to you when you return to them from the campaign. Okay. Again, if you are not in touch with the historical context of these ayat, it is very easy to pass over them without them resonating within in the way that they need to resonate with them within. So what is the reference first to the Arab? Because you notice that first it says that the Arab, the Arab is Muhammad Asa translates it as Bedouins, who come asking for exemptions. Okay, so who are these Arab? First, after the defeat of Mecca, we mentioned that there was a year known as Amil Wufud. The defeat of Mecca, the crumbling of Quraysh in their conflict with Muslims, resonated. It, it was a, a powerful message that many in Arabia, um, that resonated with many in Arabia. Various tribes decided to switch allegiance and to cast their lot with Muslims was the Prophet Muhammad and in particularly in Amal Wufud in the in this in the ninth year Hijra, the Prophet started receiving numerous delegations from numerous tribes that 
offered their allegiance to Muslims, switched allegiance. And many of these tribes, believing now that they are joining the victorious party, converted to Islam. And as I said before, the practice of the Prophet was to say, okay, you've now converted to Islam. I want to send people from the Ansar or the Muhajirun back with you to teach you Islam. And as we said that this was a major sacrifice because the people selected would either have to um, relocate their, their family to go live with these tribes for months or years, year, sometimes two, or sometimes six months, depending. Uh, or they would, depending on the circumstance, they would leave their family behind and travel and just go with the tribe, live with the tribe, and be separated from their family. A major sacrifice that I think it will it, it adjusts our psychology if we understand that the founders that's the level of sacrifice that they that they committed to and did. But the problem with a lot of the Arab tribes, even though they were learning Islam is that tribal loyalty was to the tribe and not to a principle or an idea or a cause or a central authority. And when in Surah At-Tawbah it refers to the Arab, the issue of the Arab, what it's talking about it's not, as some Orientalists have said, that there is um, a, a, an arrogance between the Arabanites and the, 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 um, um, the traveling Bedouins because Bedouins don't live in settled areas. I mean, that's nonsense. The, the, the critical issue was that Bedouins that converted to Islam struggled with their sense of loyalty that was foremost, first and foremost, to the tribe and not to the cause. And therefore, when it came to now being a part of this, and these are, by the way, the tribes that renege and turn around and and in the wars of apostasy Harub um, al-Ridda that were led by uh, Khalifa Abu Bakr um, these are the same tribes I mean it tells you that even after until the death of the Prophet it it was a serious issue the understanding that we are now part of a, a state we are part of a central authority we are a part of a cause we must sacrifice for this cause. All of that was not intuitive to them. And so the problem of Bedouin tribes coming, coming up with excuses, excuses that 
are difficult to rebut because they are citing tribal affairs. They're saying the, the, the particular situation with our tribe doesn't allow us to join your campaign. Well, you're citing information. It's like people who come and say, you know, my family circumstance or, you know, uh, I have special things going on or special circumstance going on with my children. You can interrogate them, but that's not the prophet's style. And so he didn't interrogate them. He didn't say, well, you know, I don't believe what you're telling me about and remember that <laughs> as a result because he is not questioning them and he's not interrogating them and he's leaving them to their conscience they then as we will see accuse him of being uzum of of being uh, naive and of believing anything that was said to him and the answer is he it's there's no reason to believe that he actually believed these excuses. He, he didn't say, I understand, yeah, sure. He would simply not respond. And the onus is upon those who are coming up with the excuses. And these tribes who exempted themselves in truth because Allah knows that it is because their their sense of true loyalty is to the tribe this is very much i mean if you again if you if i if we call it the thick description of the quranic verses it tells us a great deal about our nationalistic attitudes about the way we cite family circumstance or the way we cite family loyalty or ethnic loyalties or nationalistic loyalties it, it tells us that even if we get away in, in in the mechanics on the dynamics of our worldly affairs with these types of commitments morally they're repugnant and we might very much have to be held to account in the hereafter for these type of blind loyalties, especially when these loyalties prevent a true commitment to the moral cause that you are supposed to serve. Okay, so this is one aspect. The Arab, when the, that, when the Quran refers to the Bedouins who come and ask for exemptions and understanding that the moral critique is their entire structure of loyalty and moral commitment or how they identify what is worth being committed to and what is worth sacrificing for uh, or not. Okay. Um, and Allah makes clear that Allah's not talking about those who are ill or those who are truly destitute or those who are 
truly not in a position to join a military campaign. But those who could be in a position to sacrifice if they made the necessary commitment and were willing to make the necessary sacrifices. Okay. Then a reference to those who come, and here it's a very famous historical um, incident, a group of the, 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 the travel to Tabuk, as we said, is much longer than or any of the previous battles. And because of the distance that is required to be traveled, and the narratives here are rather um, interesting. Because, notice, it says, إِذَا مَا أَتُوكَ لِتَحْمِلَهُمْ قُلْتُ لَا أَجْدُ مَا أَحْمِلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ They come to you and ask for Muhammad Asa translates it as a mount. There is a very interesting um, uh, um, set of reports. One group of reports say that a number of converts, or including people that were Muhajirun or Ansar, came and said, volunteered, they wanted to join, and that they were told that we can't, we don't, there's no way that we can put you on the back of an animal, a horse or, or the like, or, or a camel. So you can't join us because you would be on foot. And as a result, they were turned away. They were told they can't join the campaign. And they, they were, went home weeping. Weeping because they've, they're losing out on the opportunity to join a jihad. The other set of reports say that the reference to al is not about the back of animals, but that these were people who were so poor that they didn't have footwear, adequate footwear for the march to Tabuk. And that the Prophet ﷺ told them, I can't let you come unless we can supply you with adequate footwear. But since I cannot afford to provide you with the adequate footwear, then I'm going to have to turn you away. And then they were turned away and went away weeping. Of course, the, the contrast between, and, and remember that the, the Quran is citing us these, these historical examples so that you can reflect metaphorically on what they tell you or what the, the way that they apply to affairs of life 
well beyond that context between those who are the, the more you have the more you have to lose the less willing you are to sacrifice and the more prone you are to convincing yourself that you have a valid excuse for not sacrificing. While if you think of, I mean, I have my, my I'm actually, my, my reservations is about the, 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 the first version of the narrative that the reason these people were turned around is because there weren't enough mounts or camels or horses. Why? Because of the various narratives about Tabuk, about people marching on foot, which leads me to believe that the more historically authentic version is the one that said that refers to footwear, not to horses and camels. Allahu alam, Allah knows best. I mean, both are plausible, but that's what I what I think. Uh, unless where you know there is a there is a particular his, historical historically specific issue that we're missing um, as to why there were people marching on foot. Maybe these people alternated, where they would ride on the the, the backs of uh, animals for a period of time, and then alternate. There are reports sometimes that there would be three assigned to the to a single camel, or um, horses were 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 even more rare than than um, horses were considered somewhat of a of a luxury. Uh, okay. And and again, when you ask the question, why were, because of poverty, why were people, why Muslims were put in a position where they would have to turn people away whether because they can't, they don't have enough mounts for them, or you don't have enough footwear for them, marching footwear, and look at the way that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala then puts the focus on those who were in a position to alter this equation. So, in fact, what the, the people that Allah is blaming are those who are well off, who were in a comfortable position, who accepted in being accepted to be among the khawalif. The way that this is phrased, it's clear that it is not just that Allah is saying 
that these people made excuses not to join the battle in Tabuk. But the expression khawalif here means that they've accepted to they they accepted for themselves or they've put themselves in a position where they were ultimately failed in their moral duties because khawalif here could be someone who not just didn't join an army but someone who is moral, morally reproachable. So even those wealthy who were not expected to actually join the army physically, but failed to support this army financially, would be described as among the khawalif. Those who failed in their financial obligations, even if so far some of them who were ad advanced in age, but well enough, and if they would have made the necessary sacrifices, it would have been possible to financially support those who wanted to join the military campaign but could not do so because there was no way to uh, provide them with the necessary supplies Who's to blame for this situation? It are, are those who are well off. The, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because we are in a, despite Surah At-Tawbah, Surah At-Tawbah that came and basically said, listen, if you are in a situation where in order to serve the Islamic cause, XYZ is necessary. And you look around and you find that XYZ is not, does not exist. And XYZ does not exist because the necessary sacrifices for XYZ to exist were not made. Surah At-Tawbah clearly doesn't just say that those who failed in their duty to support it's not just that they're blameworthy, but they are hypocrites. And if you look at the language of Surah At-Tawbah, it even describes them as hypocrites and kuffar. It's a terrifying surah. It's a terrifying surah. It's a type of surah that if you understand, it keeps you up at night asking whether you've discharged your moral obligations or not. But because we, we, are, we are prone to read a surah like Surah At-Tawbah as talking about a, a, a nice little, uh, it sounds like, um, you know, like a fairy tale of, and I'll tell you the fairy tale associated with Surah At-Tawbah, that which allows us then to bracket it as sort of irrelevant to our lives. And the fairy tale, I'm not, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but it, it means that this is the way that we 
fictionalize the message of Surah At-Tawbah is that there are seven among the Ansar um, the, the, some reports say that they were particularly from the clan of um, Banu Mukrin, but that's not anyway um, that they were let me make sure if, if there were seven or No, no, well, we will, um, I have to go a little bit out of order to, to, to talk about this. Okay, so particularly, let's take the more reliable, uh, is that they were mainly three. Ka'ab bin Malik, wa Marara bin Rabi'ah, wa Hilal bin Umayyah, or Hilal ibn Umayyah. That... These th three in particular failed to make excuses and failed to join the campaign in Tabuk. Now, if you look at verse 119, there is even a more specific um, yeah no sorry one um one eighteen so look وعلى الثلاثة الذين خلفوا حتى إذا ضاقت عليهم الأرض بما رحبت. So this is and God turned in God's mercy towards the three groups. Muhammad Asad's brackets it's brackets it's a three groups of believers. The reason he has these brackets um, is because of reports that. It wasn't just three individuals, but let's just stay with the three individuals because that helps us to make the point more cleanly. Okay, so the three who had fallen prey to corruption until the end after the earth, despite all its vastness has become too narrow for them and their souls had become utterly constricted, they came to know with certainty that there is no refuge from God other than a return to God. And thereupon God turned against again unto them in God's mercy, so that they may repent. For verily God alone is an acceptor of repentance and a dispenser of grace. So re remember, we got to 92, and I skipped to 119 to make an important point. Whether it's three groups or three individuals, and in my opinion, it's more likely just three individuals. As I said, Ka'ab bin Malik, Umarara bin Rabia, wa Hilal bin Umayyah. That these three individuals failed to join 
it's about, in other words, they failed the test. And whereupon, after the revelation of parts of Surah Tawbah, the Prophet ﷺ punished them by complete um, 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 ostracism of these three. All Muslims stopped talking to them. And they became so miserable during this time they felt thoroughly shunned and ostracized by the people they cared the most about, the real believers. The, you know, not the, the hypocrites, because the hypocrites were still happy to talk to them and, and everything. But the, the people that they, you know, they, 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 who they they've cared about, the fact that they respect them and admire them, etc., <coughs> those individuals had ostracized them and shunned them. And this situation continued for 50 nights until they were told by the Prophet ﷺ that Allah has forgiven them. And they were ecstatic and happy. Now, the way the message of Surah Tawbah is often presented is that it is about the hypocrites, the out the, the, the out and out hypocrites like Abdullah ibn Ubay, who you know were never real Muslims and never struggled with being real Muslims, and they basically once again they're they're the 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 evil character that is constantly popping up in this fairy tale, right? They, you know, up to no good again, and they again betray the Prophet, and, you know, like in every ghazwa, it's the same role, repeated role. We, they betray, and they're evil, and so on. And then, other than that group, well, you know, there are these three people who weakened, and they made an excuse not to uh, join, and even you're told about, you know, one of them who basically kept delaying getting up to join the army until by the time he got up, uh, the army had already left. And then he said, oh, well, you know, they already left. Uh, how can I join them? Which is, by the way, an apocryphal story. Uh, so he went back home and just said, okay, you know, I'll just wait till the army comes back. And, uh, you know, it's a nice story about the piety of the companions of the Prophet. Look, they were so pious that, you know, they, they were ostracized for 50 days. They were so miserable. And then Allah forgave them. And then they were so happy. And suddenly, Surah Tawbah becomes completely irrelevant. Because it became mythologized into a fairy tale. It is not, it doesn't mean that this, the, the story about the three didn't happen. It did. But the question is, why these three? Yes, there were the out-and-out hypocrites, but that these were the people that no one expected them to even bother coming up with an excuse to join, to, to, to exempt themselves from... Uh, 
this 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 um, um, campaign. The majority of who what the surah is talking about are people who were real Muslims, but struggled in the sense that they made excuses and thought that the excuses are good enough because they made some sense. And that's what really strikes you when you get into the thicket of the historical context of the surah. That's the majority. Now, why these three are ostracized but not the out-and-out hypocrites, and not the people who made excuses, went to the Prophet and the Prophet didn't respond or gave them some type of ism, or you said, okay, fine, whatever. And these people were not ostracized and were not shunned. And when you look at the details of these three, and as I said, I do believe that they were three individuals. It is because with these three, a moral point needed to be made. These three individuals should have known better. Their track record, these particular three, their track record was a track record of true jihadis, people who made sacrifice after sacrifice. But after the victory over Mecca, they thought, okay, I've sacrificed enough, and it's not a big deal if I you know, declare some time off for myself. What they did, their logic was socially selfish. They've decided, you guys go on sacrificing, but for us, we need, you know, good time for ourselves in our language today, quality time. So we're giving ourselves an exemption. But they were ostracized and shunned because they mattered. Because what the Prophet expected from them was much better. They should have known much better. Their logic was selfish. It was antisocial for those who should have known better. And with this, it's, it's quite remarkable. It is important for there to be consequences among those in society who are most positioned to set an example for others. 
So in other words, it's actually not important, as important when you let the losers off the hook. Well, you know, I didn't punish you because I didn't really expect much better from you. You're a loser anyway. And so you're making excuses. Okay, fine, go. It's between you and Allah. But it is those that you truly that are in a position to set a moral example for the rest of society. And these people, these three, were long-time companions of the Prophet ﷺ. So they mattered. And it matters for there to be consequences for them. You can't let, it's put differently in our language of today, you can't let the elite off the hook. It is actually the consequences must follow in particular with the elite. And so again, my 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 aggravation is that when you when you look at the lessons of Surah Tawbah, you find that it is as if you have a surah that if we've listened to carefully, there is no way that Muslims would end up in the situation they're in today. But the way that I've learned the message of Surah At-Tawbah was, in, 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 and like most, like every Muslim that I know in our day and age, was to completely neutralize the message of the Surah into nothingness, into just, you know, it's it's about them. So, so I mean, um, one of them, like Kaab bin Malik, he was part and he was there in Bayat al-Aqaba. So he was there from the very beginning. And so someone who was there from the start of the Medina period and someone who is known as a one of the 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 moral examples of a long time Muslim it is a remarkable society that that focuses on punishing those in a, in a society that's upside down like our societies today. It is the, 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 the old timers, the people in, in, a, in a privileged position are the ones that get the exemptions, are the ones that, you know, are entitled to the benefit of doubt. And the one who the ones who get off the hook, if they want to be off the hook, and this is exactly what has caused rot in all Muslim societies. It is moral responsibility. Is the 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 in crowd, the the most privileged, are the ones that often have the least consequences. And consequences often befalls those who are least privileged, not the most privileged. 
And subhanAllah, Allah teaches us if we would only listen in Surah At-Tawbah precisely what the, the what is dangerous with, about that type of moral logic. Okay. So we, we skipped ahead a little bit, but it, it's okay because it's important to understand the context. Um, so when in you look at Yeah, so just this is um, just in in, in passing. إليكم إذا رجعتم إليهم قولوا لا تعتذروا لن نؤمن لكم لقد نبأنا الله من أخباركم that once which is again it, it it's very understandable if you look at the microdynamics of it that when the people returned from the campaign. Those who came up with excuses and realized that a spotlight now is shining upon those, you know, it ended up that there wasn't a major battle and it ended up that people came up with, from the campaign without major disasters. Um, contrary to a lot of the predictions, the so-called confrontation with Byzantium and Ghazwa Tabuk uh, didn't end up in the disastrous consequences that a lot of these weak of faith thought it might end up with in and what you would expect is that the same people who made excuses not to join would rush to pretend to be to to be effusive about their expression uh, expressions of happiness about the safe returns of their compatriots. Oh, we're so happy you came back safely, and to start you know pouring. Again, their excuses as to why they couldn't come. Oh, we feel so terrible that you, you know, you went on this long march. We couldn't come with you because X, Y, and Z. And this is the context of 94. They offer, which Muhammad Asa translates it, uh, translates it as, um, they keep uh, that they will still be offering excuses when you return to them from the campaign. Say, do not offer empty excuses, for we shall not believe you. God has already exposed you to uh, to us, uh, and so on. Okay. Now, n look at, just again, that they will swear that about their loyalty, their fidelity, and so on. But look, فَعَرِضُوا عَنْهُمْ إِنَّهُمْ رِجْسِ وَمَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمْ جَزَاءٌ بِمَا كَانُوا يَكْسِبُونَ that فَعْرِضُوا عَنْهُمْ إِنَّهُمْ رِجْسٍ turn away from them because رِجْسٍ again is something that is foul 
they have become as if foul human beings. And their feet is hellfire. This is why I keep saying that Surah At-Tawbah is terrifying because it, 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 who wants to, to, you know, take that risk of, oh, well, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, despite the fact that, you know, that I am not a very sacrificing person and I'm not a very giving person and so on, but I'm sure I don't fall in this category. Okay. Yeah, and again, uh, what I think is, is extremely significant, that in 96, that they swear to you so that you accept them or that you forgive them. But that expression that Allah says, that even if you forgive them, even if you accept them, Allah will not. Couple that with what we know about the reaction of the Prophet ﷺ for those who make excuses when they should know better. Morality and responsibility is individual. If Allah knows that you should have known better, the fact that X or Y or Z, and remember that this is the same surah that points to, that reminds you that Allah is unhappy with Christians and Jews who've made the authoritative frame of reference their priests and their rabbis. We've talked about this before. It is, it, again, you know, we often read this ayah and, and just pass over it. When Allah tells the Prophet, you know, even if you pray that Allah forgives them 70 times, meaning a million times in our language today, Allah will not. Even when, when Allah tells us, even if you accept them and you forgive them and you are fine, the, the extent to which Islam underscores that moral accountability is personal and individual and cannot be mediated through some type of authoritarian agent that comes in and says, don't worry, as because I give you the okay, then you're fine. Think of how many Muslims, you know, we, we live this moment where, um, you know, it's, it's not a secret now that Saudi and the Emirates and so on, and the United States, and France, and uh, there's an article that I, I just read about how the idea of political Islam is being used to persecute Muslims in Germany and, and France and um, um, 
I forgot the third country, but anyway. Um, and so, under these circumstances, so much money is being spent on religious authorities that come to Muslims and tell them, don't worry about justice issues, don't worry about issues beyond your personal, your own personal interests and your own, and the truth of the matter is that many Muslims literally check out their moral conscience and even their intellectual processes and completely rely on these individuals that tell them it's okay to live an amoral life. It is a completely distorted understanding of Islam. You know, no matter how many bin bayas in, in the Emirat that tells you uh, don't worry about how many Palestinians are being killed night and day, don't worry about how many, how, how many, how much property? Uh, don't worry about the fate of Al-Aqsa and the fact that the, the Israelis have. Uh, uh, just rely on my, my, the fact that I'm saying that it's all okay. You really think it's going to fail you anything? Your moral responsibility is individual and specific. Or like, uh, why do we even like all the people who uh, uh, responded to? one of the worst urban massacres or the worst urban massacre in the modern age what occurred in Egypt and Rabah and think that as far as uh, you know as long as they have Sheikh al-Azhar uh, or Ali Guma or the Mufti of Egypt saying oh it's okay don't worry about it that then they're fine the, the moral logic of this any basic understanding of the Quran would completely eradicate and deconstruct that type of moral understanding of Islam. Okay. Okay. Now, notice in 97 and 98, when it says, Al Arabu Ashaddu Kufran, Wanifakan, Wa Ajdaru Alla Yalamu Hududa Ma Anzalallah, Ma Anzalallahu Alla Rasuli, Alla Rasuli, Wallahu Alimun Hakim, that the hypocrites among the Bedouins are more tenacious in the refusal to acknowledge the truth and in their hypocrisy than are settled people, or this is Muhammad Asad puts it in brackets, then are settled people, and more liable to ignore the ordinances which God has bestowed upon, uh, bestowed from on high upon God's apostle. And among the Bedouins, there are such as regard all that they might spend in God's cause as a loss, and wait for misfortune to encompass you. This is وَمِنَ الْعَرَبَ مَنْ يَتَخِذْ مَا يُنْفِقُ مَغْرَمًا وَيَتَرَبَّصُ بِكُمْ the, again, um, 
it, there are reports that say that this revelation was specifically in reference to Asad and Ghatafan. And Asad and Ghatafan had a very, uh, to put it mildly, contentious, even after their nominal conversion to Islam, they, they had a contentious relationship with the Islamic State and were among the first to apostate and to actually play a horrible role in the civil war during Abu Bakr in, in fighting um, Muslim forces. I think the saying that these particular the, the, this ayah, these ayahs were were addressing Assad al Ghatafan is a little bit ex post facto. That in other words, people looking at the example of Assad al Ghatafan and what they did during the time of the Prophet and what they did after the death of the Prophet said, you know, this fits perfectly Assad al Ghatafan. But what is more important is that this is not about a description of um, something endemic or inherent uh, to Bedouins. And you see in 99, that right away this is followed by saying however among the Bedouins there are those who believe in God who are sincere in their belief and who do spend in God's way so why is Allah saying listen there are Bedouins who are prime examples of hypocrisy at exactly what shouldn't be and there are those who are okay or are good it is precisely, and this is a critical point, it is this, not because of anything endemic or any of the, what the Orientalist scholars, all the nonsense that Orientalist scholars have spewed out about this, but because of the fact that Islam had a very difficult time getting try. Uh, nomadic tribes to alter their understanding of moral priority and loyalty. Remember that nomadic tribes, even when it comes to simply accepting the law of murder, so in nomadic tribes, a feud can go on for generations. And by the way, this is even in, in tribes, like in tribes in Egypt, Till today, you could have a feud between tribes that goes on for hundreds of years, and members of the tribe will keep, keep killing each, members of the other tribe in retaliation back and forth for a hundred years. And in other words, flout the law of murder. Allah says you can't murder someone unjustly, and yet because their cousin was killed, they'll kill a cousin. Any cousin will do. This nationalistic, ethnic, blood-oriented system of loyalty 
is what the Quran is condemning. Because for them, they will happily join a battle if it is about a feud that touched what they consider to be uh, something that dishonored them. But if you tell them, come join a cause that has to do with the welfare of the Islamic State, and indeed, what was, in my view, the entire conflict between Al-Bayt and the Umayyads was a conflict between the ideal of principles and tribal fidelity and tribal nationalism. That is why the Al-Bayt continued to have such a strong, even if people failed to support them on the ground, they continued to capture the moral imagination of Muslims through the centuries. Because Muslims understood that those in political power, they rely on a system of loyalty that has to do with blood and ethnicity and principles of jahiliyyah. While Al-Bayt represented the antithesis of the principles of jahiliyyah. So when the Quran is telling us, look, Al-Arabu Ashaddu Kufran, that they, the, these people are, are an example of what is wrong and or could go wrong, the ramifications and the implications of that resonate throughout history. Because you must look at your historical period and say, I'll give you a very concrete example. So many of the wars fought by Arab armies that were described as jihad and people who die in, in them were described as shuhada, as martyrs. Like the 1956 war, the 1967, 1941st, 1948 war, uh, 1956, uh, 1973. Were these wars, wars truly about defending people who suffered an injustice, i.e. a just cause, people who were had their homelands robbed and stolen and, you know, or were these basically nationalistic wars? Because if they were nationalistic wars, as I think like 1973 was nationalistic, it was not about... Um, standing up for Palestinians or standing up for any moral principle other than the nation-state and the dignity of the nation-state. And and then we are surprised that Allah doesn't aid and doesn't stand with that type of war. And 
then Arabu Ashaddu Kufran would would apply full force to this type of moral situation. Because what motivates you? What animates you? What gets you what gets your juices flowing? What gets you heated up? Is it about your ethnicity and your tribe, your team? Or is it about a principle and a cause and a moral principle and a moral cause and an understanding of the moral cause that you are born to serve and you will be held accountable for and about in the hereafter? Okay, what time is it? Let's take a three-minute break. Three minutes. You know how precise we are about our three minutes. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So, um, this theme about The, the 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 historical context of those tribal groups, these various tribes that convert to Islam, but and and, and notice how typical of the Quran, the the Quran never condemns a group of people. And even when it talks about Jews or Christians, or without always the qualifier that you can't generalize as to everyone. So we see this, that when at the same time that Allah chides those tribes that look and uh, and I, I should actually um, position this historically a little bit. The, the here one which which says, "وَمِنْ الْعَرَبِ مَنْ يَتَّخِذُ مَا يُنْفِقُ مَغْرَمًا وَيَتَرَبَّسُ بِكُمْ." When it talks about those who look at what money they they expend in favor of the cause or in service of the cause maghraman uh, as a burden this yeah it has you know the obvious meaning that it is a sign of nifaq that you consider whatever you are giving to a cause as um, as a loss rather than as it is your honor to be serving, uh, to, to actually support the cause financially. But there, there is something, uh, sort of a, a further thing to, to this, that wealth among um, nomadic tribes, there is a long-established survival ethic that a tribe 
would strive very hard to keep whatever money, whatever wealth is generated circulating within the tribe. And this is why tribes had a very hard time with women inheriting money, for instance, or even the idea that women can uh, own money in their own uh, name and and have the 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 power to um, uh, control how this money is expended, because tribes, in the same way that they they, they have this sense of loyalty that is directed towards the collectivity of the tribe, they they also a very powerful tendency among these tribal societies was to look at wealth as belonging to the tribe and as as something that should remain within the tribe. So the alienation of property and the alienation of wealth was something that tribes had an enormous difficulty with. Um, it was one thing to tell them, for instance, that your zakah is going to be used to support the those who are destitute or those who are um, uh, uh, needy within the tribe, but it was completely different to tell them that money that you donate or zakah money or sadaqah money or is going to be spent outside the province of the tribe itself. And this, this actually reaches a, a climax after the death of the prophet. Because the first, the main reason for the so-called apostasy war, the, the first civil war in Islam during the time of Abu Bakr was the issue of money, tribal money, that tribes with great deal of reluctance, that even the tribes that agreed to pay uh, their, their share of taxes to the central authority in Medina. Upon the death of the Prophet, reneged and went back to saying, well, we owe the central authority or we owe any polity outside the polity of the tribe nothing. And we no longer are willing to give money to be spent outside the tribe. So when Allah talks about that there are among the Bedouins who take whatever they spend in Allah's way as a burden, it, it alludes, and we'll see in a second how the Quran develops this, it alludes to this, to, to this, this, this challenge of getting tribes to go beyond the selfish logic of tribal the tribal unit into a commitment to a collective cause um, that and the idea of wealth beyond 
as belonging beyond the tribal unit to an ummah was a real challenge. Now, isn't it ironic that, you know, we, in the post-colonial era, Muslims have reverted completely back to the notion of a tribal nationalistic wealth. The, the try to tell Saudis that your money belongs to anyone but Saudis, or the Emiratis that your money belongs to anyone but the Emiratis, or or Egyptians that your money belongs. We've gone, and and again, I see Allah's relationship to us as entirely logical. How can Allah support those who don't support the very basic principles that Allah has given us for the equation? Um, okay. And of course, then the qualifier that, however, there are, there are those among the Bedouins who, in fact, do uh, spend in, in God's way and don't consider it a burden and do have a right understanding of their commitments and loyalties. Um, okay. Um, 101 just is a more particular reference to the dynamic that I was talking about. وَمِمَّنْ حَوْلَكُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ مُنَافِقُونَ وَمِنْ أَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ مَرَضُوا عَلَى النِّفَاقِ لَا تَعْلَمْهُمْ that, but among the Bedouins who dwell around you, in there are hypocrites, and among the people of Medina, there are also there are such who have grown insolent in their hypocrisy. This, just the only thing I want to say about this is that I've mentioned repeatedly that we. Often, the way we tell the story of the Sirah, we ignore and we obfuscate the extent to which dissent was tolerated um, at the time of the Prophet And here, Maradu an Nifaq, it refers to the fact that many of the Remember the ayah right before it, one, verse 100. It mentions the old-timers, the muhajirun, the ansar, the, those who, the migrants, the ansar, who are solid, loyal companions of the Prophet والسلام, uh, who are a, a, a moral example unto others. But then when... Then right away after that, it talks about those who are insolent in their hypocrisy. Why? Well, that's because among the solid old-timers, they would repeatedly complain to the Prophet about the extent to which the old-timers in hypocrisy those who have been hypocrites since the Battle of Badr and onto the Battle of Uhud and onto the Battle of the Trench, that these folks are insolent in 
in the the extent to which they are defiant and the extent to which they keep repeating the same offensive behavior and the extent to which they criticize you prophet they 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 slander you they speak ill of you they say horrible things about you and you don't allow us to do anything against them you don't permit us to even exile them or exclude them from uh, the community of Medina itself. And especially what arose at the time is some who said, well, listen, we have a problem with these Bedouins who've converted to Islam who we are struggling to teach them the right Islam, but when they see the moral example of the hypocrites, some of them latch onto the moral example of the hypocrites and say, well, if these old timers who have been there for, lived eight years, nine years with the prophet and have been, you know, constantly uh, committing what we describe as acts of nifaq, meaning, you know, renege on going out on battles, refuse to join, follow commands, refuse to do what the, the, the Prophet ﷺ is telling them to do. It, it, it's empowering them. It's a bad moral example to them. And this is the context of these ayat, is that Effectively, Allah is saying, you know, there are some of them that they're hypocrites, and you don't know they're hypocrites, but Allah knows that they're hypocrites. And so these are the, the, the discreet ones. But there are also the insolent ones. And notice what Allah says about them, is that, that, say, here, this, we will cause them to suffer. Muhammad Asa translates it as doubly in this world. Um, I don't think it means doubly. It's not maratain. It doesn't mean that we will double their suffering. But I read this as a, something that I alluded to before in, in the same surah. That these people, although they are not being punished at the time of the Prophet, and Allah knows that they will not be punished at the time of the Prophet, I think that they're, they're, when it says marratain, they will be punished twice. Well, one time is clear in the hereafter, but what is the other time? And I think it's the wars of apostasy. I think Allah knew, Allah knows, obviously, that there's going to be these wars and that these wars will result in their defeat. And Allah knows that they will apostate. While there were no consequences to their defiance because they remained nominally loyal while the Prophet was alive. They continued, for instance, to pay their dues. Whatever taxes they owed the state, they, they paid. 
But once the Prophet died, it was a different ball game, and I'll show you in a second. So notice, خُزْمٍ أَمْوَالِهِمْ صَدَقَةً تُطَهِّرْهُمْ وَتُزَكِّيهُمْ بِهَا وَصَلِّ عَلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ صَلَاتَكَ سَكَنٌ لَهُمْ وَاللَّهُ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ Now, this issue of, remember, it, it first talked about the fact that there are these Bedouin tribes that have a very hard time with the sadaqah going to the central authority, right? And with the alienation of property beyond the tribe. And and Allah pointing to this as a as a as a problem and a sign of nifaq. And with the nominal um, the nominal contact or the nominal bond between those who were the the, 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 the consistent hypocrites was that they continued to pay their financial obligations to the central authority. And they only stopped doing that, uh, do so, doing so after the death of the prophet, and which caused the civil war. But notice in one o three. So Allah says, "Take from them the sadaqah. The sadaqah here is includes the tax that was collected by the central authority. And Allah explains that. This money that goes to the central authority by the Prophet ﷺ purifies the believers. It is the money that supports the backbone of the Islamic State. And Allah says, Prophet, pray to your for pray for your followers. Salli alayhim. Do du'a for your followers. And Allah says that your du'a, that it, it, for those who are true believers, it is a comfort for them. Let's see how Muhammad Asa translates it. This is, uh, and pray for them, behold, thy prayer will be a source of comfort, yeah, to them. For God is all hearing and all knowing. When the Prophet ﷺ died, tribes like Asad and Ghatafan and a number of other tribes that refused to pay the sadaqah or the tax to Abu Bakr, they, the argument, the ideological argument they made is that We used to pay the sadaqah at the time of the Prophet because the Prophet's prayers were a second, comforted us. But your prayers is not a second, is not a comfort for us. And hence, we refuse to pay. Now, what, again, if we, if we stay away from the fairy tale approach to the seerah 
of and the, the, the early Islamic history. Why is this significant? As many jurists pointed out, it is, it is a plausible ta'wil. If you think about it, 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 it has a logic to it. You're pointing to the text and saying, well, Allah said the Prophet is entitled to take the, the sadaqah to the central authority because his prayer is a comfort. But since your prayer, Abu Bakr, is not a comfort, we don't want to pay. Does it have a plausibility to it? Yes. Does it mean it's correct, the correct that we? I don't believe so. Plausible arguments are often used to conceal hypocrisy. And you can you can use this beyond, in fact, I, you know, in my field, I can say academic arguments are often used to obfuscate and conceal hypocrisy. This is part of the way that Abu Bakr and Ali radiallahu anhuma fought those who had a plausible ta'wil, a plausible interpretation, a plausible cause, differed materially from those who fought without a plausible interpretation or a plausible cause. This is why, although we call the, these the words of apostasy, but although you might believe that, or you feel, or you even might know that this plausible argument in the hereafter, Allah will expose it as concealing nothing but hypocrisy to create institutionally a system in which you accept the plausibility of the existence of a plausible argument to create a system of rights that makes conflicts not a zero-sum game is very critical. So when this is per the instructions and the teachings of Ali radiallahu especially. When fighting those who had a plausible interpretation, even if you believe it's wrong, you cannot execute them. You cannot confiscate their property. You cannot persecute them. You cannot punish their family members. There are a whole host of restrictions. Imagine if we, if that ethic civilized our political conflicts throughout Islamic history. Imagine if we would say, yeah, you know, I don't, 
I, I am completely convinced that you're you're really a hypocrite and this argument you're making is nothing but an excuse. But just because it is a rational argument, it is not on its face totally absurd, that creates a system of rights and guarantees that prevents the conflict from being a zero-sum game. Either I vanquish you or you vanquish me. I know that this is a, a more... This is the whole point of Ahkam al like when and, and in fact, it, it went as far as some jurors said that the reason that Allah allowed uh, the companions to fight with one another is to teach us what are known as Ahkam al I am shocked and amazed to find modern Muslims who should know better because it's the same thing in Shia jurisprudence and Sunni jurisprudence. They turn ahkam al-Bughadi, they actually use the language of saying someone is a baghi as if it is an excuse to exterminate them and to, to, to execute them. While any novice in Sharia law would know that the entire the, the, this and this is goes back to Imam Ali in particular that the whole idea of Ahkam al bugha that they are that is that those who are dissenters who who you fight in this rebellion but they have a plausible interpretation then certain rules basic rules, humanitarian rules, apply to the conflict. Uh, anyway. Okay. So, now, okay. So, this is the, the that reference particularly as to verse 103, which, as I said, becomes a, a very interesting point of contention in the so-called wars of apostasy. Because, as we said, some were actually apostates and some were, I mean, they, they, they were probably in, in Allah, only Allah knows best, but, I mean, they probably... Many of them were just relying on the legal argument, but just because they invoked a, a legal argument based on verse 103, they then gained particular immunities um, for, in warfare and after warfare because of that plausible interpretation. Can, can For instance, I mean, do you know that the... the, the the context of 103 and the whole tradition of Ahkam al-Bugha, when someone like Ali Guma, the, the, the Mufti of Egypt, stood there and said about the, the people in Rabah, oh, exterminate them, you can kill them all. Uh, Allah's law is that you can, you know. This is in direct contradiction to the, to the entire teaching of Sharia law, that in fact, 
Islamic law, because you know that those people, whether they're demonstrating in Iran or demonstrating in Egypt, or that they are relying on a plausible interpretation. So you can't kill them. You can't execute them. Anyway. Okay. Um, now, just notice that on 106, that as we, we that Allah says that there are some that there will be punished twice. And as we said, they will be, they will suffer as I think, Allahu alam. But I think that they will suffer in the laws of in the wars of apostasy, and that then they will be punished in the hereafter. But then, look at one o six, and yet there will be others among the hypocrites, who, whose cases are deferred, until God judges. Either God will punish them, or God will turn again unto them with God's mercy. Meaning, either God will punish them, or God will forgive them. So, again, look at the ethic of moderation. That even as to these hypocrites, Allah first told us, many of these hypocrites... You don't know who they are, but Allah knows who they are. Now, there is a tradition that I don't think is trustworthy that says that Allah gave a list to the, the prophet of all the hypocrites. So that, but I mean, since the prophet didn't tell us who these hypocrites are, I mean, it's that the Gabriel came to the prophet and told him, okay, I'm going to tell you the names of all the hypocrites. But what matters is what the Quran says, is that there are some known to you and some that only Allah knows. And then Allah tells us that, you know, what matters is take the sadaqah that is due to the central authority to protect the backbone of the Islamic State and Pray for your ummah, and in principle, know that your ummah, that your prayer is a comfort for your ummah. I think in this is 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 a is is a moral example. Any imam of a Muslim state that must strive to be so accepted so celebrated by his or and i believe her because i i don't believe that there's any prohibition that an imam be a woman uh by their ummah that people feel do you know the the the, the, the level of popularity that is necessary for most people to feel that the dua of this imam is a comfort, is a source of comfort to them. I personally believe if, if that Allah was 
setting like a yardstick for us. If your leader is either so impious or so cunning and, and, and unprincipled or just so unpopular that people feel no sense of safety or security in under this leader, then that fails the ideal. That, that in itself is a, a thorough rebuttal of the ideal, meaning that th- th- this is not the type of leader that you should have. I mean, it's it just, it's, it's un- incredible with um, the, what the tradition that we have that we can still have Muslims that go around saying, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, you owe the ruler blind obedience, it doesn't matter whether he's loved or hated. In Islam, rulers don't have to be, or you have to love rulers, even if they're, love rulers, even if they're unjust and disgusting. I mean, how did that, how does this demonic influence seep into our tradition? I don't know. Okay. Then no. Then after that, so the reminder by Allah that uh, I'm, I'm okay. So there are those among the hypocrites who Allah will punish, as we said twice. And then there are those that it's up to Allah. Allah will either forgive them or punish them. That that moral qualifier you have only a student of moral philosophy, a student of the history of moral philosophy, and history particularly of political philosophy, would truly appreciate how radical this just in saying that there are those that appear to you truly evil, hypocrites, but then come to to tell you, well, when all said and done, you know, it's up to Allah, either Allah will forgive them or punish them. So, Think of the historical context that some of the old-timers that would complain to the Prophet that why aren't we taking action against the hypocrites who are setting a bad example for new converts. And Allah then consider that in light of what Allah says. And part of what Allah says is that, well, you know, for these hypocrites... Some of them are deserve the worst of fate, but some of them ultimately Allah might forgive. And as long as they fulfilled their legal commitment by paying the sadaqah,
what is the moral lesson communicated to these Sahaba is that ultimately if, if that person who you firmly believe is a hypocrite, the as 104 makes clear the the doors of repentance is open to the very last minute and ultimately they may be, might be forgiven by God for whatever what Allah has done is taken or deconstructed the hardline position that says zero tolerance for dissent. The, the, am I, is the point getting across? That the moral introspection and the moral carefulness of the Quran is astounding because it's coming and telling you yeah, you know, Allah knows that these are there are dissenters who are horrible doing, but it never it never allows you the type of moral condemnation that you would find with moral inquisitions. It, it never gives you the green light to engage in a moral inquisition. It always says, well, you know, the doors of repentance are open. They, they might repent. Allah might forgive them. So you always have to be on guard and err carefully, lest you end up being in the morally wrong position. Okay. Then, and this then is... And look at, of course, 105. That ultimately, Allah reminds you again that it is not, that when it comes to action, it is not th those who are in a position to evaluate action. I'm talking about 105. It's not just God, not just the Prophet, but God, the prophet, and the believers. It's like saying, actions speak the loudest. You, you can't, it, it is not legitimate as the, the sort of the, the constant um, uh, um, narrative of many of the hypocrites. In when they would be morally reproached or people would be dissatisfied with them, their response would be, Well, how do you know how do you know that I don't do? Maybe you just don't see what I do. Maybe I am, you know, I serve God more than you do, but you just don't see it. The point about moral service is that it manifests and it be shown and it be seen. And the type of individual moral relativism that says, oh, well, don't judge me because, it, 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 yes, I don't politically condemn you and I don't politically judge you, but we 
absolutely have an obligation to be ethical observers for one another. Okay. Now, we get to 106 and 107 and 108, 109, well, actually, it goes on to until 110. Is the incident of what is known as Masjid Dirar. And so, um, and the, 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 the moral lessons here are, are, are manifold. Uh, so, wh- what is this um, situation? So notice first that from 106, it starts, no, sorry, 107, not 106. And there are hypocrites who have established a separate house of worship in order to create mischief. وَالَّذِينَ تَخْذُوا مَجْجِدًا دِرَارًا وَكُفْرًا وَتَفْرِيقًا بَيْنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Okay, so there is a historical incident, and again, the, the importance of understanding the context of building a mosque. This mosque became known in Islamic history as Masjid Dirar, the Mosque of Dirar. And why was it called that? Because it was referred to in the Quran as Masjidan Dirara. And so they took from that the the um and okay. A group of Muslims went and built a mosque in in an area near, known as a Qubba. And they then invited the Prophet to come pray in this mosque as an inaugural step celebrating the founding of this mosque. And the Prophet ﷺ told them that he would come to pray in their mosque and inaugurate the mosque. And it was ostensibly just, you know, another mosque for the convenience of Muslims. Um, However, as the narratives go, is that Allah then reveals to the Prophet ﷺ I personally, I mean, I, I don't think, I think the, 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 the Quran is the revelation that the Prophet received. It, uh, you know, the stories that say that Gabriel came and the, the, the text of the Quran itself makes it clear that it is the Quran, the, the revelation was the Quran. That Allah then reveals to, tells the Prophet that you should not pray in this mosque and that this mosque was not built with good intentions, and that 
this is a mosque built by hypocrites for um, for political causes that are that intended to cause dissent. Um, and whereupon the Prophet ﷺ ordered the mosque to be torn down. Now, there are several things. Um, there is a uh, there is a book written by an Israeli scholar, by the way, about this one incident. It, it's anyway. Um, it's it's sort of interesting that it's the the only book dedicated to to the the subject. But of course, you know his interpretations. You know, again, uh, have some weird stuff. Anyway. Um, so, in the context of this whole dynamic with the dissenting factions, there are the hypocrites whose hypocrisy comes from weakness of faith, and sometimes ignorance. And then there are the hypocrites, the dissenting factions in Medina. Some of the some of them are quite insolent in their dissent. Among those people is a fellow known as Abu Amr. He later on becomes known as Abu Amr al-Rahib. Uh, Make a long story short, the reason I mentioned the name of the Israeli scholar is because it, it's um, my interest in this incident started out when this Israeli scholar was invited to give a talk at Princeton. He led a seminar, um, um, led a, a, a seminar session uh, invited by Michael Cook and I don't remember his name, but he he came and he gave he led the session about Masjid al-Durar, and at the time he was writing his book, and I was assigned to to do research on some aspect of it, and then the, when I started doing the research back in graduate school, I became so fascinated by this entire incident, and um, you know, so now we're talk about. 30-year journey. Uh, so anyway, um, so Abu Amr al-Rahib seems to have been the most charismatic uh, personality in um, firing up a the uh, the effort to build this mosque and to get people to donate money for this mosque and to and to construct this mosque and so on and what 
what was very interesting about this this um, the, this mosque is that a lot of the people involved with it were people who have often been accused of um, either the, of being disloyal or among being this faction that I say, the, the regular dissenters. So either people that had been part of Abdullah ibn Ubay's faction that withdrew from the Battle of Uhud, or people who were reportedly sat out in the Battle of the Trench, did not join the, the, the defenders of the, in the Battle of the Trench, or people who uh, refused to join the pilgrimage uh, in in the the events that led to uh, the Treaty uh, of Hudaybiyah. Um, you know, you remember that there was a group that said, "Oh, it's a suicide for us to go on this uh, pilgrimage um, and unarmed, etc., etc., and refused to join." Um, so, it, when you look at the names of all the individuals that are associated with building this mosque, not all of them, but the, the clear majority of them, um, were always had something in their background where they were involved in one incident or another. And their relationship to Amr al-Rahib, Abu Amr al-Rahib, is very... Um, is full of, of ambiguity. And and why Abu Amr al-Rahib in particular? Because Abu Amr al-Rahib, after building this um, mosque, or, yeah, after building this mosque, either, there are reports disagree, either he travels to Byzantia and, and or he sends a messenger to Byzantia. Either he travels to Byzantia and attempts to gain an audience with the Byzantian emperor or sends a message to the Byzantian emperor. What both streams of reports agree on is that it was part of a scheme to claim that there is a breakaway faction in Medina and to ask the, the Byzantine emperor to support a breakaway faction. So to tell the Byzantine, you know what, what foreign, what governments do today all the time is that you want to defeat a, 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 an opponent so you claim that you are supporting a dissenting faction like when the Americans for instance supported the Kurds in Iraq uh, or when the Israelis ally themselves to the Druze in uh, the Arab Druze in Lebanon or 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 even in, in Palestine itself um, or when you know when the Israelis ally themselves to the Kataib, the the Maronite Kataibs, and, and so on, is that you say, well, 
um, we are so you're invited a, a group a group says come support us and the legitimacy is that now you are supporting an internal movement that is a demonstration that the that ruler doesn't have the unquestioned support and acceptance of the ruler that he claims to represent or of the people that he claims to represent so and once abu amr al-rahib once the this mosque is torn down abu amr al-rahib in fact escapes and he's as far as i know he's the only one that makes a run for it uh he leaves Medina altogether and he goes up to Shem um, in the Byzantian, in the areas under Byzantian influence in, in Syria. And he actually converts to Christianity and he, he dies in, in a Shem or in Syria, uh, a Christian. So, so, here, notice the dissenting faction now allied into a political faction centered around a dissenting political act that was going to invite foreign interference. It is quite instructive that the center of that with the excuse for that foreign interference and the excuse for breaking up the unity that was going to pretend to be an you know a, a, an alternative form of islamisty was torn down by the prophet but Research all the individuals who were reportedly involved in this incident. What is most significant is none of them are arrested or tortured or killed. So Allah says that this was a plot. Allah says that you have to turn down it. But even with Allah's... Now, I'm not saying that you can't punish people who, who conspire against an ummah. But it is of great instructive value the extent of reluctance that the Prophet ﷺ displayed in executing people for political reasons or imprisoning people for political reasons. If if you if you just learn from that some of the of 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 the caution 
it, it would serve us a great deal. What, what we do know is that Abu Bakr and Omar, we have reports from Abu Bakr and Omar, is that with the people that were involved in, in this Masjid Qiba' as it's called, um, or Masjid Dirar, the the uh, the Qaba is the, as I said is the region where I think I mis I, I misremembered it first as a Qaba but it is a Qaba that um, or Qaba uh, is that with a number of Abu Bakr and Omar and a number of companions refused to pray with those who were, to refuse to pray with those who were involved in this incident. Why do we know about this? Because the, one, of the, one of the people was Mujma bin Haritha. Mujma bin Haritha, all indications were, is that he was, he didn't really know the intentions of Abu Amr al-Rahib. And that Abu Amr, he thought that he was just supporting a mosque effort. Initially, uh, the, the Abu, Abu Bakr and Omar, and there's a report even from Ali, that they boycott and shun Mujma bin Haritha. And they refused to pray with him, and they refused to appoint him to any political position because of his involvement with Masjid Qaba'a. Uh, incident uh, when the Prophet ﷺ dies, uh, Abu Bakr says, I will not appoint you to any political position. And even when he says, you know, appoint me to, to something like I could, I could go teach converts to Islam, uh, go to travel to a tribe to teach them Islam, he says, no, I won't appoint you. You were involved with this incident, you're out. And then Majma bin Harissa swears, takes an oath with Umar ibn al-Khattab that he didn't know the intentions behind building this mosque, that he was had the best of intentions, that he had no idea that uh, Abu Amr al-Rahib intended to reach out to the Byzantine Empire and use this mosque as an excuse to uh, invite the involvement of the Byzantines. And Omar ibn Khattab believes him. And after believing him, he forgives him. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to pray with you and I'm going to appoint you to political positions. And again, we have a report that Imam Ali radiallahu anhu also has the same position towards Mujma. Why is this significant? Okay, take a pause and reflect. they could have adopted the dogmatic position. Well, Allah condemned those, the incident of Qaba' or Masjid al-Durar and all those who involved with Masjid al-Durar. There is no place for me to use my reason or my judgment and forgive you. I'm sorry, I can't forgive you because Allah didn't tell me to forgive any of you. They could have done that. And modern Muslims, that's exactly what they would have done. But these people 
had a, a, a natural relationship to the Quran. They understood that Allah never is not precluding you from your from using your sense of discernment and from exercising your the best of your judgment. Yes, Allah condemned those involved with this incident. But that never precludes human agency. And the, the necessity of human agency. So, there is a huge difference between killing people, destroying people and their families, and between saying, well, you've engaged in something that is wrong against the state, and so you've lost your rights to be trusted by the state. A huge difference. And yet, the state represented here in the personalities of Omar al-Khattab and Ali bin Abi Talib, it doesn't lose its agency in using the best of a judgment as who's truly culpable and who's not truly culpable. You know, this, this image that centuries of authoritarianism and despotism has ingrained in the Muslim mind, Sunni and Shia, that the Islamic State is all about being quick to punish. And it's like the Saudis do, you know, a minor infraction, you know, put them 15 years in prison and throw away the key. A minor disobedience to the to the ruler, you know, throw them in prison and even ask for the this this is the byproduct of the the tyrannical state, the successive tyrannical systems of governments that ruled that represented the Islamic State from the Umayyads to the Abbasids to you know the, the various the, but but even these tyrannical states, I think, they could have been understood in their historical context. In other words, they could have been understood the way we understand Henry VIII ruling over Britain and with his executions. But it is or colonialism and Orientalism that denied us and their myth of Oriental despotism that the Orient is inherently despotic, that, that has, in the same way that it, it has infected the intelligentsia with many Islamophobic notions about their own traditions, it had even infected the religious class with equating their tradition with absolutism. And a, 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 and a, a politics being a zero-sum game. It, it's like when I wrote my book, Rebellion and Islamic Law, I grew up believing 
what Orientalists have been telling Muslims and what Muslims believed about themselves is that Muslims were simultaneously quietists. They accept despotism and they never rebel against despotism. But at the same time, that Muslims were lawless and have no understanding of legal authority. And the more I read, the more I noticed that the two are irreconcilable. You can't have them be thoroughly obedient, but also disobedient. But that, all the different, I am talking about shiuch, I'm not talking about, you know, university professors. I'm talking about all the shiuch I had taught me what Orientalism has taught us about our history as solemn truth, indisputable. And it is, when, when, then you discover that it, 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 and subhanAllah, and you discover it through the Quran that the, the, the first sign that something is really off in the way that you understand your own tradition is the Quran itself and the text of the Quran and the example of the Prophet and his entire dynamic with the Quran. What time is it? Oh, oh my God, we're over. I want to stop at nine and we're over. Okay, so we are ending at um, at Masjid. The incident was Masjid Quba or Masjid Durar. Um, which goes to 110. So we're ending at 110, inshallah. And remember that we skipped ahead to 119. So, inshallah, we'll be able to. Okay, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen, and we're... Okay, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, as always, this was an absolutely incredible, incredible surah, or portion of a surah, day seven. Um, let me just share some highlights. Um, so that we learn from the beginning that, that causes are successful not necessarily because of the truth or because of the argument of something, but because people are willing to sacrifice and that they have the right attitude, um, that they're willing to go beyond what is usual and comfortable for them. Um, and that oftentimes it's those who are the most comfortable who are the least, um, the least willing to sacrifice. Um, and that oftentimes we may have a tendency to, you know, have or make valid um, excuses, comfortable excuses, and that that can be dangerous because that can then actually probably undermine this willingness to sacrifice, um, and that causes need true sacrifice and true commitment. And even the reminding us of the example of um, the founders and the sacrifices that they made um, when they went and left their life to go live with other tribes who had presumably converted to go teach them Islam, whether it was for a month or six months or, or a year or two years. Um, 
and that how um, the issue of like loyalties and how today we are um, there are oftentimes these blind loyalties to you know nationalist or ethnic or tribal or blood priorities instead of um, actually a moral cause and that Allah is telling us that that obviously is morally wrong um, and just how you pointed out that this is a very terrifying surah in that sense that if you um, you know are not living up to your moral uh, duty or expectation you know for example maybe you were you know too old or too weak to actually go to war but you had the financial means to support and you didn't um, so the question always is have, have you discharged your um, moral obligation um, and how pointing out to us that how modern Muslims have made a Surah Tauba really a fairy tale instead of really taking it seriously um, and for example, um, the three individuals who you said that you know were they, uh, the Quran made an example of what you believe was three individuals who should have known better, um, as an example for others, um, and that uh, today we have, um, or these are you know obviously people who should have known better and made excuses for themselves in a very selfish way. Um, and how today we have sort of flipped things around where oftentimes people who are the most privileged um, get away with the most exceptions and the few and the least uh, or fewest consequences um, and the reminder that um, that moral responsibility is personal and individual um, and that that responsibility cannot be mediated by anyone else um, and to ask yourself you know what is it that animates you is it um, principle or a, a principled or moral cause or is it your team or your tribe or your nation? Um, and learning that Allah never criticizes a group without qualifiers, um, that you, you cannot generalize. Um, and reminding us about our attitude um, that oftentimes there are people who are not willing or don't see serving or giving to a cause um, as a blessing. They rather, they see it as a burden and the challenge um, that wealth actually belongs um, to the Ummah, you know, beyond your tribe, and how um, ironically today we have reverted back to that idea of tribal wealth, especially when you look at what's happening at the, in the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Um, and the whole um, discussion on Aham al-Bogat, can you translate what that means? The law of rebellion. Law of rebellion, okay, so um, if you have, uh, the whole discussion about if you have a plausible interpretation, um, or a rational argument that certain humanitarian rules apply, that you can't execute people, you can't um, take away their property or do a lot of these things. And this is really the whole focus of your rebellion book, Rebellion um, and in Islamic Law, which is uh, published in 2001 by Cambridge. Um, and you kind of snuck in something that I thought was like jaw-dropping for me when you said that there's no prohibition to a woman being an imam. So I was just like, what? Okay. Um, and then also that the really powerful insight that, you know, Allah, Allah was setting a benchmark for us um, when we should expect that our imams and our leaders are the type of people that when they pray for us, that their prayers are actually a comfort. That was just really powerful and insightful that you know it's one of these things that you would never you would just gloss over but it was really beautiful um, 
and that um, despite all of this discussion about hypocrites and, that, and such, um, that Allah may, when all is said and done, choose to forgive them and that the doors of repentance are always opened. And so such, you know, such important lessons for us in our time that regardless of how hypocritical or how evil we may think um, certain people are, that um, when all is said and done, this is not a green light for moral inquisitions that you know, the prophet never, um, in certain examples, um, you know, arrest or torture or imprison you know, people. Um, and just when you see what's happening in our world today, it's just such a stark, um, it's, it's just the opposite, it's such a stark difference. Um, reminding us that actions speak the loudest and that we have an obliga obligation to be ethical observers for one another. And then the very powerful incident of the Masjid Durar, which I think was just really, um, I mean, important um, historically for us to understand, but that the really important takeaways was, again, that despite what happened, none of these people were arrested or tortured or killed. Um, and that the, that after the Prophet, peace be upon him, passed away, that Abu Bakr and Omar, um, who initially refused to pray with those who were involved in that incident, um, with the man who, you know, came and swore that he didn't know that the, the intentions behind the mosque, um, that, that they actually forgave him and used their human agency and reason not to just do what we modern Muslims would do and say, well, no, God made already made this decision and that's what I'm going with, but to actually forgive him, accept that, um, you know, believe him, and then, you know, allow, like, like pray with him and, and you know, um, appoint him to positions and so forth. Um, and then, you know, just what you started on at the very end, which I thought was just so valuable, is your own journey of understanding, like when you started learning things from your own shiuch, that you believed sort of this myth of Oriental despotism and all the things that you were taught that came from an Orient Orientalist perspective and the power of your research and your learning from the Quran and how that's really um, undermined um, or, you know, was completely at odds with all the things that you were taught and what we have been taught and what we have um, inherited from our tradition. And so again, just underlines the power of education and this knowledge. So, um, so much gold. Thank you so much for this incredible session. As they all have been, Sortaba has been amazing. Um, and I'm excited to continue next week, inshallah. inshallah. We're, we're in the in the tail end, so maybe we'll see if we finish, inshallah, next inshallah. week. <laughs> so you guys have a wonderful rest of the week. Assalamu alaikum. Wonderful to see all of you. Assalamu alaikum.